morning, folks. I woke up this morning with uh, John Adams on my mind, one of your greatest presidents, but he wrote the following. Our constitution is for a religious people. It is wholly unsuited to any other. He's proving to be right. Whether we will come out of this, I don't know. Uh, long before uh, my time, uh, the generation before me, Toynbee, not a <clears throat> highly popular guy now, but he uh, he had some views which dated him, but nevertheless, he, he studied why cultures come and why they go. Tyrannies always disappear in the long run because they're held in place by political power and draconian means, and they usually last about 70 to 100 years, and then they get replaced by another tyranny unless you're very fortunate. What Adams is looking at is the future of America, and he understood that you had been blessed very deeply in the fact that your government, when it was first set up, didn't have to think about good and evil. Those were givens, as they were for the Jews, as they were for the Christian environment. And Toynbee recognized when you lose those moral goods, when you no longer have a moral consensus, that's the first uh, step on a very slippery slope. Because when you cease to have agreement about the nature of good and evil, your respect for law diminishes, which is the next step in the process, because when you win the elections, the other side doesn't respect the laws you make, and when they win the election, you don't respect the laws they make. That's, that's terrifying. And you can see that polarization happening in politics around the world at the moment. How it's going to come out, one doesn't know. There are little bits of uh, not-so-bad news um, you probably haven't been following the Scottish National Party's uh, political ups and downs in the recent past, but they just came very close to that ex-leader was thrown out for her uh, total mismanagement of the trans uh, content, uh, trans issues in, in Scotland, which is very conservative on whole. And uh, so they had to get a new leader. And they very nearly got a very smart young woman who is absolutely unapologetic about her basic Christian roots. And she came close to shifting the, the compass a long way, but didn't quite make it. So we'll see what happens next. But the divide is getting real. We shouldn't be too upset about that because we seek a kingdom whose builder and maker is God. Uh, read the Psalms every day and you'll see that... Uh, the requirement for endurance and persistence and faith was always what it has been. We're not supposed to be too settled in where we are now, but Americans in particular are very, very good at making themselves comfortable. No nation in the world has made themselves more comfortable than the Americans. Uh, uh, you could eat your breakfast off the floor of most American homes, the place is so hyper-clean. Um, and you have more bathrooms and bedrooms almost now. It's really getting quite ridiculous. But uh, that won't last um, unless it has some depth, and that's what Adams was concerned about. We are the product of a Judeo-Christian culture that's gone on for 2,000 years, and nothing has come close to it in terms of performance historically. Interestingly enough, this last week, 
my wife and I were watching um, uh, Peter Robinson on Uncommon Knowledge interviewing uh, Tom Holland, uh, Douglas Murray, and Stephen Meyer. Now, Tom Holland is a historian whose book Dominion, most people who listen to this podcast would almost certainly enjoy reading. Uh, he writes popular history, but he's a good historian. And, uh, he has slowly, by dint of the work he's done, come to realize that what he appreciates most in his life in England owes its existence to the church, not to modern progressive politics. Uh, Douglas Murray is in much the same state. Uh, he... he claimed to be Christian at one point. He, I don't know whether he's a, an active homosexual, but he was at one point. But he's also going through the process of realizing that some hard choices have to be made. And again, he says, I have to acknowledge that almost everything that I really appreciate owes its existence to Judeo-Christian thought. Uh, when people ask him, why is he rocking the boat so much against the progressive uh, camp that he used to belong to. And he usually says, uh, I point to things like uh, the Gothic cathedrals and ask why we can only build eyesores now. You need a big picture to do great things. And Stephen Meyer, of course, took a long journey of many years uh, before he became convinced by the digital realities of DNA. Uh, I agree with him on that from the point of view of sitting back and saying, it looks to me very much as though there's a mind behind the universe. Uh, the digital nature of DNA is oh, its stunning. It makes microchips look banal by comparison. Uh, and it, it only gets more complex by the day. But those are all, all three of them are on an intellectual journey. That wasn't what happened with your founding people. They arrived with 10,000 years of acceptance of the Judeo-Christian position. Um, let me read a bit of Chesterton's Orthodoxy. I just got myself a new edition because the, the previous one fell apart. Um and I couldn't resist starting to read it from the beginning and reading my way through it again. Get my thing out of the way. Um, this is right at the beginning. He says, he's talking about his understanding, his philosophy. To show that a faith or a philosophy is true from every standpoint would be too big an undertaking, even for a much bigger book than it is than this. It is necessary to follow one path of argument, and this is the path that I here propose to follow. I wish to set forth my faith as a particular answering of this double spiritual need, the need for the mixture of the familiar and the unfamiliar, which Christendom has rightly named romance. For the very word romance has in it the mystery and ancient meaning of Rome. And anyone setting out to dispute anything ought to begin by saying what he does not dispute. Beyond stating what he proposed to prove, he should also state what he does not propose to prove. The thing I do not propose to prove, the thing I propose to take as common ground between myself and the average reader, 
is this desirability of an active and imaginative life. Picturesque and full of poetical curiosity, a life such as Western man, at any rate, always seems to have desired. If a man says that extinction is better than existence or blank existence better than variety and adventure, then he is not one of the ordinary people to whom I am am speaking. Young men in particular are looking for that sense of meaning and adventure that Chesterton is talking about there. Um, And he goes on to talk about it throughout the book, as only he can. Uh, For those of you who are listening to this, who are sort of looking from the outside in, Chesterton's Orthodoxy would be a good book to start with if you want to engage more closely uh, with what I think are the key questions. So what he's saying is that as human beings, we have two sets of needs that we are not, and our politicians are not thinking about. We need a broad base of settled understanding of how we ought to live. And we need the capacity to do crazy things, if you like, to be carried away by our own desire for something bigger. Um, my wife has been the main instigator of those things in uh, our life after the first thing that once we fell in love, uh, which was crazy too, but then we went off to Jamaica or off to Africa or whatever um, because it, it seemed like the right thing to do. In a, not in a prudent sense, but in the the cultural and moral sense. When the Rwanda war blew up and we were on the border, the other side, in what was then Zaire, uh, I knew that Sally was not going to come back in September because there were seven-year-olds trying to care for four-year-olds on the streets of Bukavu and Goma, and she wasn't going to leave them. And she didn't. She spent a couple of years uh, running difficult refugee camps for the UN. The high point of her life in many ways, although she paid a high price for it in terms of using the last drop of emotional energy before she came back. But we need that dimension to our lives. What we've done is try and take too much control of our lives and not recognize that ultimately we are creatures. What we have to do for this is is almost outlaw any serious discussion of after death what. And yet it's a question that gets to all of us. The trouble is, in the modern world, we're only getting to it very late in our lives, and that means we we miss out on a lot of life because... As uh, Chesterton goes on to say in that first chapter, when he he looks at the alternatives historically, the Judeo-Christian thought has nothing to be ashamed of, comparable to everything else. And of course, he doesn't go back to Deuteronomy, but I would. But the first setting up of that base for living uh, in the kind of way that we would recognize didn't come till the children of Israel were brought out of Egypt and into the Promised Land. I mean, before that, all the patriarchs were basically shepherds, so they moved from place to place, and they had a, a very small circle of uh, hangers-on, if you like, or born that family plus, uh, enough for uh, Abraham to um, 
have a reasonable raiding force to go and rescue Lot at one point, but they, they didn't have settled places. They didn't have uh, uh, buildings and the like. It was only when they came out of Egypt that the next stage was going to happen. This God in his big plan understood. And what he gave them was a, a set of settled statements because he said, you cannot flourish without these if you do not keep these laws and honor them and keep them sacred, you will not flourish. And every time they tried to do without them, they didn't flourish. Unlike all other cultures, they get multiple bites at the cherry. It seems to me that most cultures get one bite at the cherry. You go up, and if you break this first rule, you're going to come down. It's only a question of when. Uh, the Jews, uh, because they are an example to all the rest of us, as they will tell you if you ask them about it, they go into exile, they get beaten up, they get turned into slaves, and then in due course they're sent back to see if they can do better with another try. And they go on doing it that way. So that is an insight from God. He doesn't apologize for it. He doesn't rationalize it. He just says, I'm the God who brought you out of Egypt. You couldn't do it on your own. Now, these are my laws, the ten divine intolerances, I prefer to call them. All the things that I will not tolerate, because if you do tolerate them, you will destroy yourselves. Um, you must be intolerant of any attack upon the idea that there is a God, and so on down the list. You can read it that way, and it's a profitable way to read it. Now, we're well on the way in the Western world to making ourselves gods, and we're not up to the job, and that's pretty clear. Uh, you sent me a, a link this morning to yet another shooting uh, in the States uh, that always gets big publicity because the liberal elites who rule think that guns kill people, that a gun has never killed anyone. It needs somebody to pull the trigger every time or to design it so that it will go off at a certain time. It's humans who kill. and uh, But they're, they're very selective. I mean, uh, just for interest, I looked up uh, the figures. Uh, you, a lot of people get killed by guns. Uh, 45,000 a year in the U.S. Uh, 20 million of these, however, uh, are murder, but 25 are suicide. A little bit under 20, a little bit under 25, because 750 are legal killings uh, by the police. Um, it's tiny, and uh, by the way, more whites are killed than blacks. Uh, there's some adjustment that could be made to that, but those are the figures. Now, when you compare that to another behavior that they don't want to talk about, because it doesn't fit in their grand narrative. Uh, and that would be there are one million people a day getting what? And there are over half a million cases of one example of this in the world. They cause about half a million deaths from cancer of the cervix, one of them does. I'm talking about sexually transmitted infections. These are orders of magnitude bigger problems than guns. But they don't want to say anything about that because that doesn't fit their narrative. 
And we, of course, are too dumb to insist that we prioritise things in the order that they should be done. I mean, uh, Bjorn Lomberg from Denmark has been writing a series of articles of late about the things that we could do, and this is certainly one of them. Uh, but we're not, we're not doing anything that comes close to being meaningful. We know when the problem really took off, and you can go and look at the figures. They're easy enough to find. Uh, when I uh, was a medical student, I only needed to know about four or perhaps five sexually transmitted diseases, and I would not fail finals on that issue. Now the students need to think about 30, at least 30 different diseases, and one of them, of course, which they don't put in the list at the moment, when you go and look up the sexually transmitted diseases, they don't put AIDS in the list. They treat it as a separate entity or as though it was a, an exceptional phenomenon. Of course, it wasn't, and it wasn't handled properly and uh, because, again, of the grand narrative. Uh, we don't want to talk about it. Uh, we're a society in denial. Uh, that won't do us a lot of good because these kinds of decisions do have consequences. It's changing our society in a big way. When we legalized same-sex marriage and gave the LGBT XYZ crowd uh, what they wanted, were they satisfied? Not at all. Now they want to close down religion. Although they have a religion, it is the belief that there is no God. They don't want to close that down. That's supposedly rational. The fact that it doesn't explain the world we live in and doesn't explain us as human beings is the point of Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy. But the council culture uh, is eroding our society. You see some smart uh, uh, unbelievers, as far as I know, what's his name? There's a comedian who does a chat show, but he says uh, perhaps the only meritocracy that's left in America now is sports. And even that is having a battle. But I think in the long run, everybody who's got any sort of sense at all has to say, look, if you're going to allow people to call themselves whatever they wish, uh, you might as well give up on female athletics because you're going to have uh, men uh, dressed as women who are going to take all the records. They're doing it with dramatic speed. Now, uh, that's unreasonable and unfair to women. It needs to be fixed. Uh, if you want to start a third category for people who've changed their sex from in their own mind, from female to male, that would be fine. They have their own Olympics. It'd be rather small, but there you go. Uh, a few dozen people competing with themselves. Well, I guess it started off like that. But we can't go on this way. I mean, there's an awful lot of girls who are being really upset by this, and rightly so. But that's not that they have a problem with building this into their narrative. And, of course, uh, you've seen multiple examples over the last few years of an article in First Things recently uh, reviewing some of them. The, the guy who uh, lost his job with Firefox because he had particular views. You're seeing it now with some hockey players who refused to use where the LGBT regalia. Um, this won't do... Uh, What's happened is that we've disordered the goods, which is what we always do. 
we are try to put in top place things that can't bear the weight we want to put on them. So uh, diversity, inclusion, and equity are good ideas at one level, but you try to make them the dominant ideas and they will not work. And we only need to go back a little while to see that when you have these revolutions, they always end in bloodshed or sometimes not quite so bad. But even the simple distinction between truth and loyalty, if you're loyal to your group as the primary concern, then uh, you attack the others for not being of your group. This is tribal warfare again. When you put truth first, you start looking at the data and trying to make decisions that honor truth. Where truth is dominant, you get a more successful society. You have to because you get your job because you can do it, not because of who you think you are. Identity politics has got to be a disaster at every level. Um, Tom Sowell's three rules need to be repeated again and again and again. You know that whenever you're looking at changes of this order, you've got three things to consider: what is being proposed compared to what has been. Uh, doing nothing is always an option. Sometimes it's the best. Doctors know that. And uh, certainly if you go to ICU these days where the lawyers have taken over, so you don't have the doctor free to say, I think the best thing is to do nothing when he knows very well that it is because he can be sued. So a lot of the expenses in healthcare are now primarily driven by litigation, not driven by medicine, and driven by bureaucrats who, because they can't understand the real nature of medicine, uh, want dumb rules that they apply in a way which is easily demonstrably uh, going to lead to trouble, is leading to trouble. Uh, ordering of the goods is so important. So when your child uh, tells a lie and then owns up, the first thing you should do is celebrate the honoring of truth that the child intuitively knows he, he or she should do. And then you negotiate, what do we do as a kind of reminder to you that this is not the way to behave? And you can negotiate what that should be. And the child will accept that because it restores the relationship. But when you put loyalty to a group in, in that position, then you get incompetence promoted to the point where it's idiocy and causes all the damage you can imagine. You only have to watch YouTube with the things going on in uh, the people who are applying for um, having to be conform confirmed in some way by uh, your political process. And uh, it is unbelievable the way bureaucrats uh, refuse to answer questions to the people who are nominally at least in charge of the system, which is not the bureaucrats. And if we don't fix this, we're in deep trouble. Uh, there's no question about that. So... Um, we need to find ways to deal with this. Now, the, the key step forward is don't make statements. Ask questions. Devastating questions are what we should be about. And we've got some good models, the best of all, of course, being Christ, followed by Socrates. Uh, uh, but when somebody came to Jesus with an important question, he, he usually didn't answer it directly. The young man who wanted to know what, how he ought to live, and he said, 
Jesus said, well, let me tell you a story. Uh, having got out of him that you should love your neighbor as yourself uh, by questioning, he then tells the story of the Good Samaritan. And it's been feeding our souls ever since. Uh, in the, the upper room, the beginning of the upper room discourses, uh, uh, they got everything going for the, it wasn't the Passover feast, it was the day before, but they were having a, a, a meal upstairs uh, and there'd been no slave at the door to wash their feet, so their feet hadn't been washed. And after supper, Jesus gets up and gets a towel around his waist and a bowl and he, he starts washing the disciples' feet. And they, they are horrified. Peter in particular is horrified at the idea and Jesus explains. And then when he's finished, he says, you call me Master and Lord. And you do right, because that is who I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, wash your feet, what ought you to do? And that is a no-brainer. But we still struggle with building it into our culture. Um, the, uh, the lovely film Beckett has a, a scene where Beckett, having given up politics and become uh, Archbishop of Canterbury on Maundy Thursday, the Archbishop washes the feet of the poor in real terms. You know, and uh, that's an important example to give. Uh, of course, within a family, uh, as the children grow up, they realize that not only do you serve, you serve gladly and willingly. And uh, driven by the, the model of the master. And then you, you have the joys that I have as later on as you see uh, the same process be, being done by your children for their uh, children. And the recognition that this is the way we ought to live is a wonderful gift for a family to have. But Nowadays, you see nasty, nasty, spiteful competition going on uh, in the university. Uh, it's a big change. In, when I began in science, uh, rather than just doing medicine, that, that meant actually reducing the amount of income I would have, because science at that, that stage wasn't, in fact, uh, highly profitable, unless you had a nice... Uh, sinecure at Oxford or Cambridge. But what that meant was there was a real camaraderie about the people who did it, and we did it, didn't even think about fabricating data. Um, it, it was a non-issue, largely. Uh, of course, it turned out later there was the odd person who was doing it. Now we have no idea how much cheating is going on in the scientific literature, because lots of money is attached to it, and conflict of interest is everywhere. There was huge conflict of interest in COVID, and it wasn't declared, it wasn't dealt with. Uh, if we don't straighten these things out, the whole thing will be will dissolve in a mess. I mean, nowadays the problem of a professor is to try and teach the students; they're not willing, in most cases, to do it how you go about finding out whether something should be believed or not. Instead, we have politicians who say, science has told us. Now, science hasn't told you. 
the science sets up some questions. You've still got to think about whether you should believe it. Well, get some depth to your understanding of what's going on. And of course, as I said, when I began, you you could go to a, a, a scientific meeting and you would be pulled apart in public. But the guy who pulled you apart is quite likely to take you out for a beer afterwards because the being pulled apart in public was part of the process of sharpening your intellect and sharpening your abilities to do a better job and giving you as well a a high sense of the importance of data. That has blessed me in my life several times as uh, having been taught by my mother, first of all, uh, when very small, that lying was not acceptable in our family, so there was a high commitment to truth. you don't throw data away like so many people do now using the five standard deviations rule saying oh it must be from a different subset and just neglecting it Uh, no uh, you did the same experiment you need to try at least try to find out why you get aberrant results it might be very useful of course it it is very useful frequently it has been in my life one of one such example has literally saved thousands of lives because I didn't dismiss a few outliers, four of them, I think, in a a group of 50 or 60 children. But taking that seriously and pursuing them to see, since I'd done everything the same, these different results might teach us something. And they did. They led to the, the solution for the last bit of the treatment of severe malnutrition was a few children died when we started to refeed them and we didn't know why. And those turned out to be uh, those outliers. And the, also there was a clue as to what to do and it worked. So it's, it saved, I suppose, 5% of uh, severe malnutrition uh, from dying. Uh, nowadays, we went on and be, realized that a bit more caution in the way we did some things, and it became even better. But that's the way we learn. But now you have bureaucrats deciding that the the current protocols for treating something have to be followed rigorously, and so they just check the things they can measure, and then they put them in a, a statistics pack and, and fine you for spending too much time with a patient. Whereas actually, uh, the people who do that are the best doctors out there because they deal with patients as patients, as individuals. You see how the contradictions come in. You have a bureaucratic uh, overarching rule that doesn't understand who's talking about identity politics, and yet they want to be treated as individuals when they come to be sick because uh, our diagnostic categories are by no means perfect. I jokingly say that when we really understand the Human Genome Project, we will come to an amazing conclusion. We are all different. And uh, so that will play into your treatment. It is already beginning to, to play into uh, the way you treat people, and it should. But uh, we've got a long way to go in learning to honor our history and the way forward is to look very seriously at the history of things. We don't read history anymore. If we did, we wouldn't be doing some of the stupid things we're doing at the moment. 
De Tocqueville, in writing about America in the 18th century, he realized that uh, we were the, the the danger for America is the vast majority of people will be content with things, and that you will lose the the depth to your lives that were given in the early days because there was no possibility of central government. So as America spread out, local government had to be the government of well-intentioned individual people, and the organization that organized them most effectively was always the church. So uh, De Tocqueville understood that the church was one of the great gifts to America because nobody argued about good and evil. In fact, you only have to ask your grandparents. Uh, if you'd gone into a bar when you were in your 20s and there'd been an argument going on and somebody said, the Bible says, that would have finished the argument in most cases. Not anymore. In fact, the exact opposite. Chesterton coming a, a century after uh, de Tocqueville says, quite simply, America can only be understood as a country with the soul of a church because they had no option. Now, of course, we have people making laws for us, which we know to be blatantly wrong, unfair, discriminatory, uh, and we don't know how to answer it. So it's this question of knowing the history and teaching it. I saw another, I think I mentioned it in the last podcast, it's so good I want people to go and watch it, but um, the Royal Institute in uh, London has a Christmas lecture every year, and either last year or the year before, an American uh, uh, gave the Christmas lecture and he recreated a day in which Faraday uh, di invented the electric motor in one day. And it's a lovely story because Faraday had no formal education to speak of. In our world, he would never have become what he became in the 19th century. There was no way that he could have become uh, president of the Royal Institute, uh, member of the Royal Society, the highest honor in science in England, when he'd left school aged 11 or 12. That's simply not a pathway that's open anymore. But it was then because uh, raw talent was recognized and it found its way up. <laughs> That's one of the gifts we have from our history. Um, um, perhaps the easiest little book to read first would be Rodney Stark's For the Glory of God, because Rodney Stark was a sociologist of religion, and uh, he was interested in why Christianity succeeded. Um, and he wrote this little book, and the section on science is, he does in one chapter what the standard textbook uh, takes a textbook to do. So um, it would be a challenge to some people to read what he's got to say, but it, it led to, his, as I understand it, I may be wrong on this, that, that he came back to faith as a result of the work he did. And that's happened I mean, just earlier in this talk. I uh, mentioned Stephen Meyer, who was brought back steadily by uh, simply looking at the data. Uh, and a lot of Honest scientists do that. Um, 
not all of them come all the way back, but they, they get to be as honest as the famous guy at Cambridge, uh, whose name has gone from me at the moment, who said on one occasion, it looks to me as though somebody has been monkeying around with the constants, because all the major constants in science are in, have to be incredibly finely tuned for the world to be as it is and for us to be here, out by uh, an incredibly small amount. It wouldn't have happened. When, when I, I say incredibly small, I'm talking about 20 or more zeros after the decimal points, and then you get a, a digit, and that difference is enough to make it impossible for us to be here. I think I'm going to stop there today. Hopefully I've annoyed some of you in a very good way, and you'll do the honest thing of finding the books I've uh, mentioned, reading them, and seeing if you can actually take them apart. I doubt that you will. Um, but you might even bless me for it one day, who knows? But blessings on you anyway. <laughs>